Welcome to the Jacksonville First Seventh-day Adventist Church Podcast, where we listen, learn, and love together. We hope you enjoy this inspiring message. Let's talk about how to apply everything we've been learning this weekend in our relationships with one another within the body of Christ. I call it the church of if all else fails. Let me tell you a quick story. I was presenting it in a church in California that a friend of mine is pastor of. And I went for the evening meeting and gave the evening meeting. And after the meeting, I had a PowerPoint presentation. I like to have visual aids to you know, give people visuals because they can be helpful. And at the end of the presentation, as we're packing up to go home, I can't find my computer. And so we start searching throughout this whole church campus. And they had a school, and they had a big fellowship hall, and all these buildings, and it was a big church. And we looked top to bottom, couldn't find anything. And after about an hour, an hour and a half, my pastor friend said, I'm sorry to tell you this, but your computer's been stolen. It was really hard to face that because my whole life is on my computer. It's almost like my brain is on my computer. And so I was really worried about how I was going to deal with that. And on the way home, I remembered I never brought my computer to the church. (laughs) I brought it on a thumb drive. But I thought, I'll have a little fun with this. And so what I did was I called everyone into my room, and I said, I found the computer, put it on the floor with something over it, and then I said, let's all pray one more time that I can find my computer, and we all gathered around, and in the middle of the prayer, which I had the daughter pray, and she was like 10 years old, in the middle of the prayer, I ripped the blanket or whatever I had off of the computer, so it was sitting right in the middle, and we all opened our eyes, and I said, Lolo, it worked, you know? So the point is that sometimes the last place we look is home. And the church, God wants the church to be that kind of place that's home base for us. And unfortunately, there's many things that challenge that. We don't always have the level of connection, of safety in our churches that we need to have. One of the ministries I'm involved in under my nonprofit is called Project Safe Church. It's a program, it's basically a strategy and a structure that helps unions and conferences deal with sexual abuse allegations that occur within church. These things happen, unfortunately. And a lot of what's happened in the past in Adventism is that the dealing with these things devolves upon people who aren't trained to deal with them and people that have relationships with the people that are accused, which presents a conflict of interest. So this system lifts it off of the local people and puts trained people to work in resolving these cases. It's a very, very good system based on a policy that the NAD wrote, and we've applied it in the Lake Union. We're almost finished. We've been working for the last year and a half, and we're hoping that some other unions will also use us to put this structure in place because I want the Seventh-day Adventist Church to be the safest church on earth. And I want us to deal intelligently and capably with these cases instead of hoping that they'll go away. Because it's kind of similar to taxes. You can wish all you want that they'll go away. They don't go away. So I think we need to deal with them. So the church should be a safe place, amen? And the church can really speak a lot to the loneliness needs of the world. You know, loneliness is pandemic. 
Um, and it's also very dangerous. It increases mortality by 50%. It's comparable to the risk of smoking. It's about twice as dangerous as obesity. Socially isolated people experience what we call chronic limbic brain arousal, where the emotional part of their brain is in a constantly aroused state, and that can cause health fallout. It is thought that loneliness is actually increasing. There was a great uh, researcher from the University of Chicago. His name was Cassiopo. And he said that it was up to 40% from 20% in the 1980s. Now, in England, they actually have a minister of loneliness. It's, they take it so seriously. But what we find is that people often have more loneliness. Uh, they're more disconnected in reality when they're more connected on social media. So there's these studies coming out, uh, UK studies saying that the age 10 to 34, loneliness is higher, as social isolation has increased with social networking. And here's a quotation from another study, Facebook use predicts declines in subjective well-being in young adults. Scary. Scary. There's a crisis. Now, when I was a teenager, some of you have guessed, I had a little bit of kind of a hippie past. And yes, I grew up in the hippie era. And so let me just share a few things with you about the hippie era. Uh, why couldn't the lifeguard save the hippie? Because he was too far out, man. Uh, what do you call a hippie's wife? Mrs. Hippie. How do you know a hippie has been staying at your house? He's still there. <laughs> All right. So the hippie movement promoted this idea of peace and love. But how well did they do with that? I can tell you because I was in it. There was no peace and no love in that movement because they were relying on their own resources to be able to love one another. And as you saw this morning, what happens when we rely on our own human resources to love one another. We can't do it. We need it to be supplied from outside of us, and we need God to also make our vessel fit to be able to support that. So that's what I was trying to illustrate in this illustration. God wants the church to experience this poured-in love that then flows out horizontally. Amen? But unfortunately, sometimes we get the opposite at church. And so some of us have been church burned. Now, you're here, and I'm glad you're here, but I bet you anything there are some wounds that some of you have sustained that you've sustained in a church context. And more than that, there are many people out there that aren't coming anymore that have been burned. And we need to be in prayer about this. But the good news is that God is also burned. Read Revelation chapter 3. He says that he's so disgusted with Laodicea that he feels like throwing up. That's literally what it says. I will spew thee out of my mouth. He's nauseous with disgust at the spiritual condition of Laodicea. So he himself feels that way about the church. But in spite of all that, church life, in spite of how dysfunctional we are, sometimes bordering on toxic and sometimes downright toxic. I've been in church situations that were fully toxic. But in spite of all that, Church is still good for you. So let's look at some research. This is science, and these are different studies. And if you want to find a lot of research, look up, you know, church involvement, mental health, the connection. It's there. In scientific research, these people have no burden to prove the existence of God or that church is good. In fact, most of them are atheists. 
but they still come up with this stuff because they realize that church is beneficial to people socially. So one study showed that depression improved, not a surprise at all. Another study showed that adolescent health improved even when the adolescent themselves didn't go to church, just the parents. The kids still got better. Another study on Hispanic churches found that people's dietary habits improved when they were attending church. I just assume that they start feeling like someone, they matter, and they get the concept of stewardship. I take care of myself. You know, God wants me to uh, be healthy, and they start to eat healthier. Not surprisingly, for young people that are prone to risky behaviors like risky sexual behaviors or risky substance abuse behaviors, those behaviors decrease when young people are involved in church. Here's another study, elderly stress decreased. So elderly people that went to church, they measured their stress level, and then they showed how the benefit of church affected elderly people compared to the same amount of socialization outside of a church context. And guess which one was more beneficial? The church. So it's not just the quantity of socialization, it's the what? The quality. Apparently there's something about the quality. Another study showed that the self-worth of elderly people increased when they were involved in church, and I think I know why. You know, the world is very merciless. You start getting old and it has no use for you. We're very ageist in our society. It's bad. I mean, I see stuff now that I'm getting to a certain age. I see stuff on social media and I'm like, I can't believe that person said that. That's blatantly ageist. That's like the okay-ism these days. You can be critical of older people, but it's hurtful. I can tell you. Um, But the church is at least shouldn't be like that. The church should be very age-affirming. Do you know that in the story of um, Joseph in Egypt, remember when he brought Jacob over from Canaan to Egypt and he met Pharaoh for the first time? Remember that story? And Jacob's this old man, you know, and he comes waddling in and he sees Pharaoh, this great king. Do you know the first question Pharaoh asked uh, Jacob? First crack out of the box, you know what he said? How old are you? And he wasn't saying it like insultingly. He was saying, (laughs) tell me what you got, dude. You know, it was a benefit to be old. It was status to be old. It was awesome that he'd lived that long. We're not like that anymore. We don't value age like we used to. But in church, at least theoretically, we could. Because, you know, it's so beautiful how we could encompass time if we would bring the generations together. Think about this. Joel chapter 2 says, your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Have you read that in Joel chapter 2? What is the function of dreams? It's processing things that have happened in the past. That's what dreams do. They help you process emotionally, psychologically what has happened that day. So old people dream dreams. Pretty much all old people have is past. They don't have a lot of future. But they're processing that past, and they've gained wisdom from it. Your young men see visions. They see into the future. They don't have a lot of past, but they have a whole lot of future. 
if you have young and old together in partnership, you're encompassing time. Like that is so cool, the amount of time you could straddle with the generations working together. But we have this idea that the young adults need to be over here and the teens need to be over here. And, and the young adults are like, oh, they're so irrelevant, all those old people and, and the old people, oh, they're so, you know, just completely out of control and liberal or whatever. We need to come together. And the creativity and the vision of young people needs to be brought to bear on the body of Christ. And the wisdom and experience of the older people needs to be brought to the table. Like, what are we doing separating? This isn't right. So anyway, I'm going off on a tangent here. But I think this is why elderly self-worth improves in a church context overall, because we value that wisdom. And face it, you never lose your usefulness in church, do you? Because you can always pray for people, even when you're old and decrepit and breathing your last breath and wheezing and barely able to get out of bed, you can still pray. And sometimes the greatest prayer warriors and the most caring and concerned people are those that have limited mobility. We had a lady in Philadelphia, the church that I went to there. I moved away in 2016. Her name was Vashti Duff. And Vashti had marched with King. She, she was a living legacy. Oh, it was incredible. I went to her home once, and she had a room in her home in Philadelphia that was basically a museum of slavery, of black history. She had a poster of a slave being sold with the price on it that she had gotten from somewhere. It was incredible. The woman was a living legend. And every week she'd come to church, she'd be bent over a little more, you know. How you doing, Vashti? Oh, I don't know. I'm, you know, I'm barely making it. And, but she told children's stories and she ministered to people pretty much to her last breath. You can increase in usefulness. You can increase in usefulness if you're fully dedicated to Jesus. Amen. So Jesus came to redeem those who are under the law that we might receive the what? Adoption as sons. God predestined us to what? Adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. We are adopted into the family of God, and because of that, we are all brothers and sisters. I want to share a story with you. This little boy here is named Robbie Novak. Have you guys heard of Kid President? Have you ever seen the videos of Kid President? He's so adorable. Uh, go on YouTube, put in Kid President. It's just this little kid that does these amazing videos, and he's incredible. So let me tell you about him. He was adopted, along with his sister Lexi, by Lori and David Novak, this couple that's behind them. Both children have a condition called osteogenesis imperfecta, which makes their bones break very easily. So after the parents adopted the children, they kept breaking bones. Robbie broke a bone. Uh, in his sleep when he was a baby. The children broke bones so often that the parents learned how to do casts at home. It was crazy. So finally, they got kind of overwhelmed by it. They went back to the agency, and they said, uh, this is more than we can handle. Can you find someone else for these children? And the agency came back to them and said, there is no one else. And so they said, OK, we'll keep them. And they kept them. So here's the story. Um, she could have, you know, they could have said, no, we're not taking them. But they had nowhere else to go. They took them. They took them home. And Lexi had more than 80 broken bones and 15 orthopedic surgeries. Robbie had over 70 broken bones and 13 surgeries. But Lexi became a dancer. And Robbie became kid president. He's probably about 12, 13 at this point. 
But that's the power of adoption. It's a beautiful thing, you know. Um, I think I have another story here. No, I don't. Sorry. Anyway, adoption is a beautiful thing. Amen. If we wish to do good to souls, our success with these souls will be in proportion to their belief in our belief in and appreciation of them. Did you get that? Let's read that again. If we wish to do good to souls, our success with these souls will be in proportion to their belief in, our belief in, and appreciation of them. So let me ask you this. Do you guys have an environment at this church where you believe in each other? Because I'll tell you something so beautiful about this teaching that Jason was mentioning that we are all in Christ as new creatures is that we can accept that people are in a change process. And even if they're not fully developed and mature in their walk, we can believe that they will get there. And we can believe in that process and then we can express that belief in them and appreciation of them and really help catalyze that process. So do you have that environment here? Do you believe in each other? It's something you can strive for anyway. Respect shown to the struggling human soul is the sure means through Christ Jesus of the restoration of the self-respect the man has lost. So when we respect one another, then we can internalize that and experience self-respect. Did you get that? We have influence over each other. We can impact the emotional stability of our brothers and sisters. And by respecting them, we can help them internalize that and actually learn to respect themselves. And let me just say this, you know, self-respect is God's answer to our desperate quest for self-esteem. What I find is people try to go for self-esteem and feeling good about themselves based on something they can do, something they have, something they are. It's so fragile because it's based on competition and it falls apart. But if we can show them self-respect and they can then internalize that self-respect, self-respect is much more grounded, much more stabilizing than the world's version of self-esteem. Our advancing ideas of what he may become are a help we cannot ourselves fully appreciate. You know, God has used many different analogies for the body of Christ, and one of the most common ones is the family. I will be a father. You should be my sons and daughters. Jesus said, whoever does the will of God is his what? Father and mother, brothers. We're called the household of God and the household of faith. And pay attention to this one. This is great. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters. And then what does it say? In all purity. Speaking, as I did a moment ago, about abuse that occurs in the church, sexual abuse, sexual misconduct, it creates an environment of impurity. But the best way (laughs) to fend off that impure kind of love is to have the real item I'm so afraid that we'll become so afraid of the wrong kind of love that we'll end up avoiding all love, love altogether. But if we have true love for one another, it will be elevating and ennobling rather than degrading. And so we should love one another as brothers, older women, as mothers, younger women, as sisters, in all what? Purity. Purity. Amen. So I want to talk for just a couple minutes here about this concept in the Old Testament, which is basically 
the Old Testament correlate to the New Testament concept of agape. What's agape? It's God's unconditional love for humanity. So this is the, new, this is the Old Testament correlate to that. And it's this amazing word called chesed. And when you say it, you have to sort of sound like you're about to spit on the person in front of you. So let's all do it together. Chesed. Okay, it's a Hebrew word. So chesed is this powerful concept that as the translators attempted to put it into language, they put it into so many different words that it's just got just like 25 different words it's translated into. But here's some of the most common ones. Chesed. What is it? Chesed is God's mercy, his unfailing love, his steadfast love, his faithful love, and his loving kindness. So let's look at some examples of this love as it is expressed in the covenant, the the everlasting covenant. He said, I will make you a great nation. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Who did he say that to? He said it to Abraham. Did he say, if you do all of these things, then I'll do this for you? Was it an exchange? Was it a contract? Tit for tat. I do this, you do that. No, he said, I am going to bring this thing to pass. And then he said in Exodus 19, now if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my own possession. And what was the response of the people? All that you have said, we will do. He wasn't saying, you know, I will do this for you if you do this for me. He was saying, I will do this for you. And their response was very much human-centered. And within days, they were dancing naked around a golden calf. How well did that work out? Not well at all. But God didn't give up. He said, I will effect a new covenant. I will put my laws into their minds and will write them upon their hearts. So God kept stating and restating his covenant with his people. If you could distill down the kind of love that leads God to make a covenant with his people at any cost to himself, to be faithful to his people at any cost to himself, what is the primary trait of that love? As I've thought about it, and there's so many things about God's love that are just amazing, but as I've thought about it, I would say that the most important aspect of it is that it is sacrificial. Now, in a sinless context, it would be self-giving. But in a sinful context, it is self-sacrificing. God's love is willing to sacrifice itself for the benefit of those that the sacrifice is being made for. So in order to illustrate that, I want to tell you a story. Many of you have heard of the, uh, I think it's called the Dark Knight Massacre. This is a Batman movie that had just come out in 2012. It's in the movie theater. And I'm not into Batman. I'm not even into movie theaters. But this particular thing happened back in 2012 where this new movie showing and this deranged individual in the corner here came into the movie theater with a semi-automatic weapon and started shooting people. There's a little bit of a subtext to this, and that is that there were three boyfriends that covered their girlfriend's bodies with their bodies And I believe all three of them paid the ultimate price and died as a result of that act of sacrifice. So that's really impressive, isn't it? It's it's super impressive that they were willing to give up their lives. But let me try to show you how God's love 
is far and away beyond even the very best that human love has to offer. Because I'm impressed with this. I think it is an act of courage, and I think it is the best a human being can offer another person. I think of Romans. Think of Romans chapter 5 and verse 7 to 8. It says, Rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person some would even dare to die. What's the next word? But. There's a contrast going on here. So what he's saying is, once in a while, even though it's rare, people will die for a good person, someone they deem good. It happens. Human love at its best can be very self-giving at times when someone is deemed worthy. And then it says, but God commends his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let me break this down for you. It's believed that Paul was referring to a Greek myth when he said these words. And I'm going to tell you the myth so that you can kind of understand his headspace, his wheelhouse when he said these things. The myth was the myth of Admetus and Alcestis. <clears throat> Admetus was a young prince, Alcestis a beautiful young princess, and Admetus was in love with Alcestis. So Admetus wanted to win her hand in marriage. However, Alcestis's father said that he would only give her hand to a man who came in a chariot drawn by lions and boars. Well, Admetus fortunately had a relationship with the god Apollo. And he went to Apollo and he said, hey, can you hook me up with this chariot drawn by lions and boars? Apollo made it happen. Admetus rode up and he won the hand of his beautiful Alcestis. Beautiful story, huh? They're married now and he's looking forward to all kinds of happiness. But unfortunately, he develops a terminal illness. He goes back to Apollo and he says, I can't even enjoy this marriage that you've made possible because now I'm ill and I'm going to die. And Apollo said, well, I'll work it out where if you find someone to die in your place, you will be allowed to live. So Admetus went to his aging parents. Can you imagine? Mom, dad, will you die for me? And they said no. And he went to his servants, and they said no. And he despaired of ever finding anyone to die in his place. And he went to bed that night in despair. But he woke up the next morning in perfect health and sprung out of bed and turned to tell his beautiful Alcestis that he was now healed and someone had been found to sacrifice their lives for him. And he looked at her, and she was dead. She was the one that had laid down her life. And it's thought that Paul, in that context, was referring to this very well-known myth, saying sometimes human nature at its very best will die for someone that is deemed beautiful and worthy and righteous. But God, and he's contrasting it for the people he's saying, but the love of God is so far beyond that. Because this is a legend. It was like the Titanic. Remember that movie? You know, where at the last end, end of the movie, this couple that fell in love, they're holding onto this piece of debris and, and they're trying to survive and, and they finally figure out that they can't both be on that piece of debris and so the man lets go and sinks down into the ocean and dies and she lives. That's the story. It was like a legend at the time. You know, this, this example of, of, of Alcestis was like legendary. This is what love is. 
And here comes Paul, and he's saying, guess what? It falls short of God's love. I've got something even better for you. God commends his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So applying it to this situation here, this is what, this is what Alcestis did, but this is what Jesus did. He loved that guy. <laughs> and here's why that's important. And here's why this creates security in our relationships. Because all of us have a little bit of this guy in us. And all of us see a little bit of this guy in each other at times. And we need to know a love that can push past that, that can power through that, and can love that person to become a better person. So that's God's self-sacrificing love. And that is the love that God wants us to be pouring out on one another. Now, I did a study recently I love the word agape, but I found a word that appears almost as often in the New Testament, and that's the word alalon. So say that with me, alalon. And alalon is translated into this phrase, one another. So we see 10 times we're told to love one another, and 36 times we're told to express that love in various other ways to one another. We are to edify another. We are to admonish. We are to serve. We are to receive. We are not to speak evil, grudge, or defraud. We are to be kindly affection to what? One another in brotherly love and honor, giving preference to one another. Be like-minded toward one another. Receive one another just as Christ has received us. Greet one another with a holy kiss not an unholy kiss. Through love, serve what? One another. Bear what? One another's burden. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. Comfort each other and edify what? One another. Amen. God wants us to love one another. I think that's pretty obvious. We're to be in each other's lives. There are to be rock-solid bonds in the body of Christ, in the family of God. How can we make sure that happens? I'm going to give you some pointers here. You know, the Bible talks about us having love. Get your love poured into your heart from God. I'm not saying that some of our emotional needs are not met by the body of Christ, but let's get our primary love needs met from God. Start from that point. The Bible talks about us having love. It says, if I have not love, I'm nothing. So you can get that love from God. He will give it to you freely. You will know you are loved, and then you will have something to share with others. If you go to other human beings, and this is one of the hard things about getting loneliness needs met in the world, is if people don't have a connection to God, they're trying to get God-sized needs met from another human being, and it's overwhelming. And so they'll, they'll, over, they'll weird people out or scare people away, or, or they won't even try because they know that they'll be rejected. In the Lord, we can have our primary needs met and our security in Jesus, and then he can bring us into fellowship one another, and we have something to bring to the potluck, see? So have love. See people in Christ. In other words, see the possibilities. Believe in what they can become. Now, that doesn't mean overlook issues. I work with sexual abuse cases. I believe that in some of these cases, people need to be disfellowshipped. They need to lose their pastoral position if they happen to be acting out as a pastor or a church leader. I believe in appropriate church discipline. And when a person needs church discipline, 
the most compassionate, loving thing you can do is issue that discipline. Because in issuing that discipline, you're saying you're better than this in Jesus. You didn't have to do this. Don't tell me you can't help yourself because this was sin, this was wrong, and I'm doing all I can by creating this boundary and these consequences to keep you from thinking that this is who you are. So church discipline is not excluded from this formula, but see people in Christ, see them for who they will become in Jesus as they follow on to know the Lord. Leave your victim at home. It's really easy to get hurt in church and then be all about being a victim. Check your expectations you're dealing with other human beings. So many people come to church, they get hurt, and they think that Christians should have been perfect and loving and kind to them. Hey, we're, we're sinful, and we're going to hurt other people. So check your expectations. Accept accountability. Church is an organization. It has standards. It has boundaries. It has a certain amount of governance. And so you know, just expect that. Don't think that you can do whatever you want and still be part of an organization that has boundaries. Uh, seek bonding experiences. So when we come to meetings, and this is why I have a lot of group discussion, because I want us to like get to know each other a little bit. We come to meetings, we're sitting looking forward. You know, It's not really a bonding opportunity, but you have service projects. You have social things at church. Then you get to know people. And you know, make it a habit when you go to a social function like potluck or whatever to sit with someone you don't know. Get to know more people. Don't just hang out with your posse. You know, don't just find your clique. Meet and get to know one another. Uh, so find your gift and serve. There's so many inventories online that help us figure out our spiritual gifts. Find out what yours are and serve God out of them. Everybody, it's so cool because with talent, you know, some people don't seem to have any talent. Some people seem to have all of them. They can sing, they can art, they can speak, they can write. They're so good at everything. And some people seem like a little on the short end of the talent stick. But... Spiritual gifts, everybody has. God has given at least one spiritual gift to each and every person. Find out what that is and serve out of it. Have good boundaries. I once went through an experience where I had a pastor who really, I wasn't really involved in church at all for various reasons that were somewhat political. And so I was kind of, you know, sitting out. I was like a fourth string player, you know, sitting on the bench for a long time, and then a new pastor came along, and that pastor really wanted me to be active, and I was so excited. Oh, good, I get to do some stuff now. But then it got kind of overwhelming. Like, they were coming at me all the time, asking me to do stuff, and I started, like, running the other way when I saw the person coming. So it's important, if you want to stay in the game, to have boundaries, have limits on what you're willing to do. And let me tell you this. Self-care is not selfishness. It's stewardship. Okay, the right kind of self-care is stewardship, and we are told to care for our bodies. That's part of righteous living. So if you're a pool on a mountain and the snow melt comes down, you rest for a while, the pool gets filled, and then it spills over to the flowers and the plants beneath. You need to restore, you need to renew so that you can keep giving. It's not so that you can be selfish. It's so that you can keep being of service. Amen? but have good boundaries. Think influence rather than control. If you go to the board meeting and you want the outcome to be exactly the way you want it to be, and you want control of that outcome, you're going to be disappointed because you're dealing with other human beings with their own opinions. Things won't go your way. But think in terms of if you know something is right and good for the church, think in terms of how can I best influence people. 
Friends, love is spelled T-I-M-E. Sometimes staying with is better than leaving. Sometimes you have to leave a relationship, but sometimes you stay in. Let me give you an example. I had a vegetarian cafe on the ground floor of my church in Philadelphia for three years between 2001 and 2004. It was really a great outreach. People were coming in from the community that had not been interfacing with the church at all before that. It was a wonderful outreach. Unfortunately, there were some saints in the church that thought that it was wrong to sell anything on the premises of the church. But it was weird because there was a commissary and they would sell magazines and call portering and all this stuff but they somehow felt like having this cafe was wrong. And they would actually have prayer meetings so that they could pray against it. (laughs) I'm not kidding. And so obviously in that process, I'm trying to run this ministry and reach out to the community and the community is responding and people are really blessed. And the church members are warring against it, not all of them, but some of them. So they eventually succeeded in closing it down. I was really wounded, it was my baby. So we went to another church for a while, but I was sitting on the pew one Sabbath, and I felt God impress me strongly, go back and love them anyway. It all worked out. I needed to go back to school. This is what propelled me into school to get my counseling stuff done, and it all worked out. It was all good. God said, go back and just love them, and I did. I went back and had 10 years, the best years of my life in a church in Philadelphia, people that are a different race than me, different mindset. Everything was just but, but it was great. It was a great experience. And I even really love the people that prayed against my cafe. I think they should repent, but I love them anyway. <laughs> we should have in-reach and outreach. It's not either or, it's both. We should follow Matthew 18. We should go to our brother that has offended us or that we know is in sin, and we should talk lovingly to that individual and, and beseech that individual to live right and labor with that situation in love. We should ask Jesus to give us that self-sacrificing love for that person because when we go to people that we would die for, they can tell, and that increases the chances that it'll go well. And if that doesn't work, then follow the second step of Matthew 18. We don't often do that, but sometimes if someone is not willing to listen to you, you bring another person with you, and they will listen if another person is present. We need to train people to be mediators. Matthew 18 is a very powerful formula, and we don't use it often enough. And then finally, forgive as a lifestyle, because there will be hurts, there will be difficulties, but learn to forgive over and over and over again. This podcast is brought to you by the Jacksonville First Seventh-day Adventist Church. Connect with us on www.jaxsda.org or on Facebook and YouTube. We look forward to sharing more inspiring messages with you.